Welcome to Season 2, Episode 3 of Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. Please be advised that the content of this episode may not be appropriate for all listeners. There will be illusions of sexual violence. We're in the second season now of Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. And one question, above all, gnaws at me. Why? What drives people to commit the kinds of heinous acts we've covered? Sometimes the answer seems simple and self-evident. Greed, as in the case of Bruno Hauptmann and little Charlie Lindbergh. Or maybe lust, as we saw in the case of the pastor and the secretary. Or possibly just a sick, sick racial hatred the kind that caused the lynching of Emmett Till. But then, there are cases like the one we have today, cases like the murderous rampage of Ted Bundy. It wasn't about money, or revenge, or politics. What could cause someone to commit the unspeakable acts that these two seemingly normal, all-American men were accused of. So mix yourself a Wisconsin old-fashioned and consider what could drive a man like Jeffrey Dahmer to commit mass murder. Why would they do it? Why would Jeffrey Dahmer do it? After it was all over, after 17 men had died, and before he had died, Jeffrey Dahmer talked about it. An interviewer asked him why. He said, I'm not sure. I don't know. But he did say, I know it wasn't my parents. It wasn't my upbringing. It wasn't the pornography. It's just who I am. But who was he? Who was Jeffrey Dahmer? He was born in Milwaukee in 1960. His father, Lionel Dahmer, was a college student majoring in chemistry. His mother was Joyce Flint, a teletype operator and they seemed to be mismatched from the beginning. Lionel was very private, almost withdrawn. Joyce was much more open about her feelings. Some people said she was overly needy, while Lionel was distant. Not exactly a match made in heaven. It wasn't an easy pregnancy. According to Lionel, Joyce was depressed during the pregnancy and experienced seizures and other extreme physical symptoms. He recalled a doctor coming to the house and giving her injections of secanol and morphine to help with the seizures and the nausea and the dizziness. Joyce said that never happened. She said it was a normal first pregnancy. 
Some family friends who knew them back then said that because Joyce was sick and depressed much of the time, and because Lionel was pursuing a degree, that Jeffrey was somewhat neglected as a child. But other people remember his parents as doting on him. But everyone agrees he was shy. Lionel said that he too was shy growing up, so he didn't think anything about it, just that Jeffrey took after him in his temperament. Joyce remembers him as just a normal, happy little boy, no more shy than than other children. But he was curious. But his curiosity seemed to focus on unusual things. Lionel recalls an incident that happened when Jeffrey was four years old. Lionel noticed a foul odor coming from underneath the porch. It was a dead animal. So Lionel crawled under the porch and collected the bones and put them in a bucket. Later, he found Jeffrey playing with the bones, banging them together like drumsticks. One night at the dinner table, Years later, Jeffrey asked, what would happen if I put bones in bleach? Lionel was delighted that Jeffrey was so curious, so he took him out to the garage and showed him how to clean and preserve bones. Jeffrey seemed fascinated. He would oftentimes scour the woods out back of his house and find dead animals. He would dissect them to see how they were put together. He would skin them and sometimes clean and preserve the bones the way his father taught him. At first, his dad thought he would become a biologist or a taxidermist. He didn't really think anything about Jeffrey's childhood hobby was all that strange. Joyce, on the other hand, claimed that she never knew anything about any of this. Perhaps. Jeffrey was using his interest in animals as a refuge. His parents continued to fight. Now, there were no allegations of physical abuse, but the arguments were loud and contentious. They only got worse when Joyce got pregnant again and gave birth to her second son, David. Sometimes the fight got so bad that Jeffrey would run out of the house and find hammers or sticks and bang them against the trees over and over and over again. Lionel finished his degree, and the family moved to Ohio. One of Jeffrey's teachers, remembering him as a first grader, said he seemed to be profoundly sad and unhappy. But his parents didn't really see it that way. By high school, Jeffrey had discovered another way to cope. He began to drink heavily. His high school classmates remembered him as a loner. He was weird, some of them said, but he was also a class clown, and he seemed to revel in attention by doing rather cruel impersonations of people with cerebral palsy, sometimes in the hallways at school or in stores around town, he would just begin bleeding like a sheep. This usually generated a lot of attention, a lot of laughs, 
and classmates would comment on him, quote, doing a Dahmer, unquote. By the time Jeffrey hit puberty, something else happened. His fantasies took a dark turn. There was a jogger around town who Jeffrey noticed. Jeffrey found him attractive. He began to fantasize about knocking him unconscious and then having sex with him. One day, when he was 14 years old, he got a baseball bat and hid in the bushes by the jogging trail waiting for the man. Fortunately for that jogger, he never showed up that day. When Jeff was 17, his parents finally divorced. Lionel moved into a hotel. Joyce and David moved in with relatives, and Jeff stayed in the family home, still drinking heavily. No job, and he graduated in the spring of 1978. Three weeks later, he picked up a hitchhiker. He brought him back to his house, and they began drinking. Eventually, the hitchhiker wanted to leave. Dahmer hit him in the head with a 10-pound dumbbell and then strangled him. He masturbated over the corpse and dissected him in the bathtub and buried the remains in the backyard. Later, he dug up the body and pared the flesh off the bones and dissolved it in acid. He crushed the bones with a sledgehammer and scattered the powdered, pulverized remains in the woods behind his house. Jeffrey was drinking more and more. His father finally convinced him to go to college and told him he would pay for it. But Jeffrey soon flunked out. Lionel insisted he join the army, which he did. The drinking continued, and Jeffrey was known as a average or maybe slightly above average soldier, but the drinking was just too much. In 1981, he was kicked out of the Army, but given an honorable discharge. He returned to Ohio, then on to Milwaukee, where he lived with his grandmother, and his life continued its downward spiral. The drinking got even worse. He drifted from job to job. In 1982, he was arrested for indecent exposure, and in 1986, he was arrested for masturbating in front of two 12-year-old boys and sentenced to one year's probation. By then, he was working in a chocolate factory and spending his nights frequenting gay bars and bathhouses. He was finally banned from the bathhouses when the owners discovered he was drugging other clients by putting sleeping pills in their drinks and raping them while they were unconscious. Finally, in 1987, he snapped. On November 20th, he picked up a man at a bar and took him to a room at the Ambassador Hotel in Milwaukee. He said that he didn't intend to kill him, but the next morning he woke up, and the man was dead in bed next to him, beaten to death. Jeffrey had bruises on his arms and hands. He dismembered the body and put it in a suitcase and took it back to his grandmother's house. He crushed the bones, 
cut up the flesh into small pieces and put them in the trash. He kept the head. By the next year, the killing spree began in earnest. The methods were the same. He would lure the victim to his rooms, drug them, strangle them, and kill them. By the fall of 1988, his grandmother kicked him out, and he moved into an apartment on North 25th Street. He was arrested for fondling a 13-year-old boy and given a one-year suspended sentence with work release and five years probation. But the killing continued, and with each killing, the rituals became more elaborate. He began taking Polaroid pictures of them. He began keeping some of the body parts and organs and eating them. He kept the skulls in a metal box. His intent, he said, was to build an altar of sorts where he could lay out the skulls and meditate. By May of 1991, he was engaging in even more bizarre behavior. He wanted to try to create zombies out of his victims to be his slaves. He tried to inject chemicals or boiling water into their skulls. He picked up a 14-year-old boy one day and drilled a hole into his head and injected hydrochloric acid in it. He left the boy in his apartment and left to go to a bar. When he returned, the boy had somehow got out of the apartment and was talking to three women on the sidewalk. The women had already called the police. When they arrived, Dahmer told the cops that he and the boy were friends and had just been drinking. Over the women's objections, the cops escorted the boy and Dahmer back to the apartment and left telling the women that it was really none of their business. As soon as the police left, he strangled the boy. The horror finally ended two months later. Jeffrey picked up a man and took him back to his apartment. He handcuffed him and laid his head on his chest and told him, I'm going to eat your heart. The man was able to punch him and escape. Running down the sidewalk, he flagged down two cops and asked them to remove the cuffs. None of their keys worked, so they took him back to Dahmer's apartment. One of the officers smelled something and went inside. In the bedroom, they saw a 55-gallon drum and an open drawer containing Polaroid pictures. The cop went back to the living room and said to his partner, These look real. They arrested Jeffrey. He said, for what I did, I should be dead. They searched the apartment and found three torsos in the drum. They found a number of body parts and organs in the refrigerator and the heads in a filing cabinet and the Polaroid pictures. Jeffrey was indicted for 16 murders, and he pled guilty by reason of insanity. He was sentenced to life in prison. In 1994, Stone Phillips interviewed Jeffrey and Lionel together at the prison, 
and he interviewed Joyce separately at her home in another state. Jeffrey seemed rather clinical and distant as he discussed his crimes, very matter-of-factly told what he did. But he did get upset one time when he said he got very angry when people blamed his parents. He said it wasn't their fault. He said he was responsible. He was accountable. When Phillips asked him why he did it, he said it it was about control. It was about possessing the victims, about becoming one with them. That's why he took the pictures, he said, so he could remember them. It's why he kept the heads. It's why he ate the organs and the flesh. He wanted to keep them with him forever. Jeffrey's story ended on November 28, 1994. He was working on a cleaning detail in the prison with two other inmates. When he didn't return to his cell, guards found him and the other inmate in a pool of blood on the floor of the shower room where they had been working. The third inmate who was working with them, Christopher Scraver, had repeatedly smashed his head into the wall. Jeffrey was rushed to the hospital but died a few hours later. When the authorities asked Scraver why he killed Dahmer, he had a simple explanation. God told me to. Ooh, that story gives me the heebie-jeebies. It is spooky, isn't it? Oh, yeah. This one, I know we'll get into comparing him to Ted Bundy later in the discussion, but this one might freak me out a little more than Ted Bundy. But we'll get to that. First, we are going to talk about the trends of the crime, and this is sponsored by Style a la Mode. This is the part of our show where I tell you all about the fashion that was in vogue at the time of the crime. Because almost all of the characters are men in our story, and the majority of Dahmer's killing spree happened in 80s, 90s, I'm going to talk about 1980s menswear. Uh, I received this first chunk of information from the article, 80s Fashion for Men, How to Get the 1980s Style by Taylor Brewer from the Trendspotter. The 1980s were a time of excess and maximalism in men's fashion. There were bold styles, bright colors, and interesting silhouettes. There were also many different trends like hip-hop, preppy, workout, rock, punk, but Jeffrey was more of a casual guy. So the casual style was dad jeans, a matching denim jacket, t-shirts, loose shirts, bomber jackets, leather jackets, windbreakers, sweaters, and sneakers. Jeffrey Dahmer donned the casual style with his long blonde hair, think like a young Justin Bieber, but more blonde, aviator glasses, but as his eyeglasses, not sunglasses, bomber jackets, denim jackets, jeans, and sneakers. Dad, did you have dad jeans? No, but that's a question I had. I mean, of course I've heard of mom jeans. Uh Uh-huh. I have no idea what dad jeans are. Would you please elucidate on that? 
This article did not go into detail about that, but I'm picturing the genes that are kind of kind of like mom genes, but for men, like they they they're tiger at the waist and a little looser on the legs, come up a little high. Is that making sense? Well, it kind of does. I I don't recall ever having any like that. I've never seen you in these no, types I just, of jeans. I just remember eighties fashions. Uh, I remember the uh, the short shorts for men. You know the NBA style shorts oh, yeah. and uh, and the wide glasses. You've probably seen our wedding pictures with mm-hmm. my big aviator style glasses. You had some Bieber hair too. Yeah, that was a long time ago, yeah, wasn't it? It was. Right? We're not gonna. We're we're just gonna slide right on by right, that one. Slide right by. <laughs> Since uh, Jeffrey Dahmer was also in the army for a little bit. I wanted to take a second to talk about how army uniforms have changed since then. And this is from, here's how the U.S. military's uniforms have changed over the past 250 years from Business Insider. In 1981, the army adopted its woodland camouflage uniform. This was the main uniform until the mid-2000s. And as of 2015, when this article was written, the army had switched to operational camouflage. And that's kind of what you would picture now if you know anyone in the military. It's kind of like that. However, this may not be the most recent because my husband's in the Air Force and they just got new uniforms and a new type of camouflage, but I couldn't tell if uh, that happened in the Army as well. So I'm not sure if the operational is the most recent. Now, when you talk about the woodland camouflage, is it is that kind of like the green camouflage, yes, the, green. the green and dark green? Yes. And today exactly. it's more of a khaki Yep, like like really pale greens and more khaki. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. Well, that's all I got for trends this week because I'm excited to get into the discussion. But why don't you tell us about the Wisconsin Old Fashioned first? Well, I was trying to choose the cocktail. And since most of these uh, things happened in Wisconsin, I went online to see what a Wisconsin cocktail was. And I assumed it would be something with beer. But I was shocked when I saw the official cocktail of Wisconsin is the Old Fashioned. Hmm. And, of course, I got very excited. We know that is my favorite cocktail. But then as I read about it, I quickly discovered that a Wisconsin cocktail is a little bit different than what Don Draper uh, would be drinking at Sterling Cooper uh, in New York City. Uh, The Wisconsin cocktail uses as its base... Uh, brandy instead of rye or rye whiskey or bourbon. Um, Has a lot more bitters, a little bit more sugar, but then they top it off with with a carbonated drink. Could be club soda. If you wanted a little bit more sweet, you could use 7-Up or Sprite. And in the video that uh, we'll be posting along with this, I, I actually topped it off with ginger beer since it was Wisconsin. So the Wisconsin cocktail is a far cry from from what I consider to be the the quintessential old fashioned. But I made it. But I liked the Wisconsin old fashioned better than the quintessential old fashioned. So if you don't like old fashions, I would try this. Mm-hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, you can say you were present at the moment I disowned. My daughter. (laughs) Yeah, 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 whatever. (laughs) So let's get into our discussion. Joyce was interesting 
Jeffrey said she was very tense, anxious, and greedy, which you mentioned. Uh, but she didn't like to give attention to the kids, and her and her husband fought a lot. And she was said to have attempted suicide. Yeah, I, I was able to watch an interview, um, as I mentioned earlier. Jeffrey and Lionel, the father, were together at the prison, and then the, the interviewer, Stone Phillips, went to wherever Joyce was living at the time. I believe it was somewhere out west. Just it, it was as if you were talking about two completely different stories. Uh, she had a completely different take on what Jeffrey's childhood was like. She felt it was just, you know, really a pretty normal childhood. Yeah, the parents fought some, but, you know, who doesn't? I'm sure as in any marriage, you know, there are two sides to every story, but just the 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 different ways that the two parents interpreted Jeffrey's childhood was 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 pretty amazing. And honestly, with the way he his life turned out, it's hard to believe he had as normal of a childhood as she claims. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to talk more about that later. But I know Jeffrey would disagree, but I'm guessing the behavior of his parents and the way his mother might have disassociated with her own behavior mm-hmm. could have had an effect on uh, this, the events that transpired in yeah. his life. And and Jeffrey's father, Lionel, also indicated in that interview that, that he wondered if there wasn't some sort of a, a genetic connection between mm-hmm. at least himself. He, he didn't really go into, didn't want to try to blame his wife too much, but he talked about how when he was growing up, uh, he was pretty obsessive. Mm-hmm. Um, was really into fire. He loved to set fires. In fact, he even talked about how he would have fantasies of killing kids at school who bullied oh. him. And and uh, Stone Phillips asked asked the question to both of them. Well, how do you think you went from a father having fantasies of killing his bullies to a son who actually did it? Mm-hmm. And neither one of them had a very good answer for that but uh so lionel lionel seems to be much more open to the fact that yeah this his the way he was raised his childhood even his genetic heritage could certainly have something to do with this though though jeffrey would say no mm-hmm. that's wild hmm. i don't know what to say that very interesting yeah. speaking of lionel he did spend a lot of time away from home because he was studying. He was pursuing a degree in chemistry. However, Joyce demanded constant attention from him. So again, more tension. And, you know, that's hard. And as as a wife, it's difficult to have when your husband is busy all the time. But um, I'm sure that that was a major source of the fighting and mm-hmm. her needing attention and him needing to fulfill his dream going to school. So mm-hmm. yeah, sure. That yeah. was hard. And Jeffrey heard it all. Mm-hmm. He heard it all. Yep. This I thought was very interesting. So according to, I can't remember which parent said this, but Jeffrey was a happy and carefree child until his double hernia surgery when he was four. And supposedly he was not the same after this surgery. 
In the Scientific American article, The Hidden Dangers of Going Under by Karina Stores, anesthesia, the kind that makes you unconscious, not not local anesthesia, may cause post-op delirium, confusion, hallucinations, depression, mania, and even psychotic behavior. This isn't so much a problem anymore because we have better technology nowadays for this. And the a different article called Post-Op Mood and Cognitive Changes Undisclosed Effects by Judith J. Wertman, PhD from Psychology Today, says technology, which shortens the duration of surgical procedures and thus time being anesthetized, should help reduce the possibility of mental and cognitive problems post-operatively. Shortening the length of hospitalization also may be helpful as the patient can return to a familiar and undoubtedly more comfortable environment. What are your thoughts? Well, I know that that one of the parents, I think it was Lionel, uh, said that that the surgery really did um, scare Jeffrey. But again, remember, he's four years old. Yeah. And I, I think it would probably scare anyone. But he knew the surgery was going to be, you know, down around his private parts. And he was very concerned that when they told him what was going to happen, that they were going to cut off his penis. Mm. So... You know, but again, he's four. Yeah. And uh, who knows what what the effects, if there are long lasting effects to that. Again, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer would say no. He Mm -hmm. said that's, so I I never thought about that again. So you don't think the anesthesia had any effect on him afterwards? Not really. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've known a lot of kids that have had surgery who didn't seem to to bear any long-term effects. Now, Lionel would would say that uh, some of the drugs that uh, Joyce took when she was pregnant, oh. he was worried that that may have had some, that may have caused some sort of brain damage to, to the fetus. Uh, and Joyce became very, very agitated when Stone Phillips brought this up. Mm-hmm. Uh, she just said, well, that's crazy. I, I, who, who would give morphine to, to a pregnant woman? Who would give any drugs to a pregnant woman? That never happened. I never had seizures. She said, I had a normal first pregnancy. I had some morning sickness, but that was about it. So again, just these two completely right. differing uh, memories, mm-hmm. I guess, of, of what happened. But, but uh Lionel Lionel has some pretty serious concerns that there could have been some some uh, fetal damage during the pregnancy. Yeah, because I don't think you're supposed to take anything when you're pregnant, especially after after or before a certain time. I've never been pregnant, but there are a lot of restrictions on taking medicine when you're pre- when you're pregnant. Of course, it was 1960 and. You know, who, who knows what back then? I mean, true. Um, so again, just yeah, some competing stories that we may never know. Mm-hmm. When it comes to serial killers, dead animals are a pretty common thread. Mm-hmm. Whether it's harming animals, actually killing animals, or having like an interest, like a really vested interest in dead animals, mm-hmm. and. Jeffrey had that obsessive interest and it started with him collecting insects in jars, but which is normal. I mean, not normal is not a good word, which is common, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, But then he started collecting roadkill. Mm -hmm. 
that's not so common. And Jeffrey said he was curious as to what was inside the animals. And he would dismember them and dissect them in, in the tool shed in his backyard. And after dissection, he would put parts of them in jars and either leave the jars in the tool shed or in the wooded area of the backyard. I bet that stunk. I'm sure it did. And and uh, again, I was a little bit surprised at Lionel's reaction to this. He didn't think, he didn't appear to think that it was abnormal. He just thought, well, this is just a hobby. He's going to grow up to be a biologist or a taxidermist. And he even showed him how to preserve bones, which, uh, as we know, Jeffrey made uh, made a lot of use of that knowledge Yeah, about 20 years down the road. Well, maybe. I mean, I can definitely see that happening because Lionel was going to school to be a chemist. Mm-hmm. So it would make sense that your son would likely be interested in that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Whereas if like I came to you with that, you might be a little freaked Mm -hmm. out Mm -hmm. because where would I have even thought of doing something like that? So I can see, I can sense the, the confusion happening here, (laughs) but the, the really bad one, it was a dog that he found dead and he, did something sad. He, I mean, I think the dog was dead already, but mm-hmm. like with the skull, he p- stuck a cross through the skull. It was just like a really weird thing to mm-hmm. do with a mm-hmm. dead animal. Yeah. I feel like that's your sign. Before we leave the childhood, let's try to compare this a little bit to Ted Bundy. I know Bundy had a, an even more uh, disturbing childhood, not really knowing who his parents were. Maybe right. his grandfather was actually his father. father. That's right. You know, he had evidenced an interest, if I remember, in in knives and killing people even when he was a youngster. Any thoughts on, on just comparing the childhoods of these two people? I use the term loosely. It almost feels like Ted might have, correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe he... I've already used this word today, but disassociated himself with what was going on, like his grandfather maybe being his father. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Whereas Jeffrey, I mean, he was in it. Like they were fighting all the time. Mm-hmm. There's not r- many ways to avoid that. Whereas with Ted, it was like a lot of rumors, and um, mm-hmm. I'm I'm trying to remember more from more from our Ted Bundy episode, but I don't know. I feel like with Jeffrey. And he was shy, and I don't think Ted was shy. No, no. I feel like it may have been harder for Jeffrey also to make friends mm-hmm. because, you know, the only way that people, like, noticed him was him making those cruel impressions. And whereas Ted was very handsome and charming and, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I look at the two childhoods and I see... I I see Jeffrey at least knowing who his parents were. Yeah, they fought a lot, um, but a lot of parents fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ted never really knew who his parents were, and then when his mother remarried, um, by that time it seemed like you used the word disassociated, and I think that's exactly what happened. He had at, by that point he had no respect for his stepfather. Didn't think he made enough money. The stepfather tried to reach out to him. He didn't want anything to do with him. Now, Jeffrey's mother had 
After the divorce, uh, she moved away and she really didn't see much of him again until after the murders, in fact. That's when she reached out to him again. Lionel did stay in contact with him throughout. So he at least had a parental influence. They seem to be much closer than oh, yeah. Jeffrey and his mother. Yeah. yeah. So there were some similarities between Bundy and Dahmer. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it feels that their personalities were pretty pretty mm-hmm. different. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Well, I guess now we're in school, right? Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So like I said, it was, it seemed, so I, I watched the movie my friend Dahmer starring Ross Lynch as Jeffrey Dahmer in 2017. It was based off of a, a book written by one of Jeffrey's classmates. And I'd like to read the book one day, but the movie kept me up all night. So I'm (laughs) afraid to read the book. Um, So it felt like it was hard for Jeffrey to make friends unless he was doing these impressions that weren't very nice or making people laugh, even if it wasn't very appropriate. Mm And I almost wonder, were they laughing with him like he thought, or were they laughing at him? I mean, he was definitely an outcast. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I think I think they were probably laughing at him. Yeah. I think he, he became kind of the class clown. Yeah, we're going to do that. Yeah, it's funny, but I'd sure never do it. Right. This is, this is Dahmer. Let's just, he's doing a He'll Dahmer do whatever, now. yeah. And uh, yeah, it couldn't have been a, a good childhood for him. And of course, by this time, by the time he's in junior high, he's drinking heavily. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, in your research or in the movie, did it talk about him? Did it talk about his sexuality? I mean, he was gay. Yes. And did it talk about any experiences he may have had in high school or college? Or not college, high school? I feel like it did in the movie. It's just been a while since I didn't want to watch it again, to be honest. It was a really, I would recommend it. It was a really good movie, but it affected me for some reason. but I think it did. I mean, they definitely made it clear that he was gay, obviously. Yeah, I read something that he he had at least a, a non-sexual relationship with one person uh-huh. in school, in high school. That may have been the one who wrote the book. Yeah. Because he was in the, I mean, they portrayed the guy who wrote the book in the movie as his like closest friend mm-hmm. in school. Yeah. And he would, if I remember correctly, it was almost like he would protect him and... Mm-hmm. Like if he was going too far, like, like, okay, mm-hmm. stop, you know? Right. Um, yeah. Well, by the time he's 14 and he actually laid in wait for this one person with the intent to hit him with a baseball bat and, and, and rape him, mm-hmm. uh, that brought me again back to another similarity with Ted Bundy, because there's some thought that when he was around 14, he committed his first murder uh, with that young girl. Mm-hmm. So these urges, at least in both these guys, seem to have been formed, you know, before they like around puberty. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. scary. Well, speaking of both of them, uh, I w- I wanted to talk about the difference between a sociopath and a psychopath because they're often used interchangeably, even though they are. Well, some believe they're the same, but a lot. I believe, and a lot of other people believe they are different. This research came from How to Tell a Sociopath from a Psychopath by Scott A. Bone, Ph.D. from Psychology Today. The definition of a sociopath is 
A person with a personality disorder manifesting itself in extreme antisocial attitudes and behavior and a lack of conscience. The definition of a psychopath is a person suffering from chronic mental disorder with abnormal or violent social behavior. They're both antisocial personality disorders. The common traits between the two are there is a disregard for laws and social mores, a disregard for the rights of others, a failure to feel remorse or guilt, and a tendency to display violent behavior. So that's common among both of them. The unique traits of sociopaths are uh, they are nervous and easily agitated, volatile and prone to emotional outbursts, including fits of rage. They're likely to be uneducated, unable to hold a steady job or stay in one place. They are able to build attachments to others, but have no regard for society in general. It's difficult for them to build those attachments, but they are able to. And any crimes committed by a sociopath will appear haphazard and disorganized or unplanned. Unique traits to psychopaths are they're unable to form emotional attachments with others or feel empathy. They have disarming or even charming personalities. They're extremely manipulative and can easily gain others' trust. They learn to mimic emotions and expressions, sometimes so well that they can have families and relationships without those closest to them even knowing about their psychopathy. And they're often well-educated and are able to hold steady jobs. And like I said, a lot of them are able to have a family life, like a wife and children or a husband and children. So, Dad, which do you think Dahmer was officially diagnosed as? <sighs> well, let me start with Ted Bundy. I mean, if based on this, Ted Bundy, I think, clearly was a psychopath. Clearly. Dahmer. <sighs> I know. You can see both. I can, I can see both. I Maybe maybe I'd I'd put him more toward the sociopath because he he couldn't hold a steady job. Uh, crimes didn't seem to be as well planned. But he didn't. It took him a while to get caught. Right. I I don't know. Well, he was officially diagnosed as a psychopath. Okay. But I, it's hard. I there is a lot from the sociopath. Mm-hmm. That applies to him. He also had that one friend, but you know the book that the movie mm-hmm. was based off of was from that friend's perspective. So mm-hmm. maybe he was mimicking mm-hmm. a friendship yeah. with him. Yeah, he seemed to have an attachment to his father. Yeah, that that carried through, and to his grandmother. But beyond that, once once he got out of uh, once he got out of the army. I couldn't really find any records of him having having friends or any other relationships. All of his victims that I could tell were one night stands. Okay. He'd pick them up in a bar, he'd pick them up at a bathhouse, he'd drug them, mm-hmm. and and that was it. You know, whereas uh, Bundy would would stalk these people and and uh, plan exactly what he was going to do. He Dahmer just seemed like, you know. I want to do something, and I'll grab somebody as long as they're attractive. Mm-hmm. That was his criteria. If they're attractive, they're eligible. So I, I could see it going both ways with him. Yeah. I well, really could. And to the psychopath part, he clearly felt no empathy. I mean, up until the end, he was saying, yeah, I, I did it. I, it was just me. That's how I am. Yeah. 
the interesting thing too in that one in the interview, Stone Phillips asked him, "Do you still have the urges in prison?" Mm-hmm. And he said, "Yeah." And he said, "If you hadn't been caught, would you still be doing it?" He said, "Yes." I, he said, "I hate to say it, but yes, I probably would." Said the only reason I'm not doing it now is I don't have the opportunity. Ugh, so again, scary. just just very detached and clinical. I, he said, Philip said, "Do you know what's wrong?" Well, yeah, I know what's wrong. Did you want to stop? Yes, but I couldn't. But again, he, he didn't demonstrate remorse. I mean, there was no talk about the victims. There was no talk about the families. It was just again, well, just I a, mean. Very matter-of-fact statements. Yes, I did it. I'm sorry I did it, but no real expression of remorse. Well, psychopaths are smart, and so they know it's wrong. Like, they Mm -hmm. know they're breaking the law. They know they're killing people, but it's like they don't care. They It's just Mm -hmm. like they they don't think to, like, this mother is losing her child Mm -hmm. or this person could have achieved so much in their life and you just took it away. Like that doesn't, they don't care. That doesn't register. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, it's scary because they know it's wrong and they do it anyway because they just don't care. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what's so scary. Yeah. And people still out there, you Mm -hmm. know, it's scary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Something I always find interesting about serial killers is they often keep trophies or uh-huh. mementos. Uh-huh. And Jeffrey did this with uh, photographs and or Polaroids and body parts of his uh-huh. victims. Uh-huh. So I wanted to know, why did he do this? Why do serial killers do this? And I found an article called Sexual Trophies, Murder, and Addiction by Mark D. Griffiths, PhD from Psychology Today. He said that the killers who keep the trophies, he said this. These are the rapists who enjoy killing and often indulging in acts of sadism and perversion. These are the men who have engaged in necrophilia, cannibalism, and the drinking of victims' blood. Some like to bite their victims. Others enjoy trophy collecting, shoes, underwear, and body parts, such as hair clippings, feet, heads, fingers, breasts, and sexual organs, and evoke our disgust, horror, and fascination. So it's almost like they want to do that because because it evokes feelings mm-hmm. of disgust, horror, and fascination. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I remember Bundy said this, and Dahmer said it too. It, it it was about possession. Yeah. I mean, Dahmer was clear. He said, it's not that I hated these people. He said, I didn't really know them. I didn't hate them. Uh, Philip says, well, was it racial because a majority of his victims were black? He said, no said the first two were white there were some latinos there were some uh there were some black men said had race had nothing to do with it he said they just had to be attractive and i wanted to keep them i wanted possession to co- and control possession yeah. and control exactly and and bundy said the same thing i remember that it was about that's why he kept the pictures that's why he kept the clothes that's why he kept Going back to the bodies that he hid. Yeah, I was going to say that's another thing they did. And he say. took off a head or two, if I remember right. And and Dahmer kept a collection of them. Uh, man, there's just something in, in the going on in these people's heads that I don't think can be explained by my parents and upbringing. It's, it's just got to be something is wired. Some sort of chemical imbalance. Or, yeah. 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 Yeah, it's in like movies I watch. 
like thrillers where this is more of a case of someone accidentally killed. Well, okay, here's an example. The Flight Attendant. This is a mm-hmm. show we both watched. Mm-hmm. If you haven't watched and you want to, it's an amazing show. You may want to skip like 30 seconds. Uh, this is a show on HBO Max starring Kaylee Cuoco. And she is, uh, she wakes up. This isn't a spoiler. This is in the preview. She wakes up next to a dead body in a hotel room. And she doesn't know what happened. So anyway, when she's trying to figure out what happened, she consults her friend who's an attorney. And the friend says, well, don't, whatever you do, don't go back to the hotel because that's what killers do is they go back to where the body is. So in movies, they're always saying, don't go back to the scene of the crime because for some reason it's like, that's what people want to do. So weird. Another part of that article that I mentioned was the following. A trophy is in essence a souvenir in the context of violent behavior or murder. Keeping a part of the victim as a trophy represents power over that individual. When the offender keeps this kind of souvenir, it serves as a way to preserve the memory of the victim and the experience of his or her death. The most common trophies for violent offenders are body parts, but also include photographs of the crime scene and jewelry or clothing from the victim. Offenders use the trophy as memorabilia, but also to reenact their fantasies. They often masturbate or use the trophies as props in sexual acts. Their exaggerated fear of rejection is quelled in front of inanimate trophies. Ritualistic trophy taking, as is found with serial offenders, acts as a signature. A signature is similar to a modus operandi, a similar act ritualistic, ritualistically performed in virtually all crimes of one offender, yet is an act that is not necessary, necessary to complete the crime. So again, control, power, and to, you know, they fantasize about this. So keeping something reminds them of it, and they get off on it. Yeah, and and Dahmer, as I as we mentioned earlier, he kept a number of the skulls, and his ultimate plan was to build a little altar in his apartment, and he was going to put the skulls out there. And they asked him in the interview, "Well, what was the purpose of that?" And he said, "Well, you know, I think I, I could have just looked at them. I could have remembered them. Uh, I, I I think I would have just found it calming. I could have used calming." Them. I could have used them to meditate. Ew. And, and again, it just it's something foreign to us, I think, that we can't yeah. understand. But yeah, it it's it goes right along with this with this article. I mean, it's not uh it's not a it's not a one time act. Mm-hmm. It's something that, that they recreate over and over. Not just with a new victim, but even remembering the old victims and you know, the feelings that generated. Hmm. This article also mentioned, like, it could have something to do with our innate uh, hoarding. Yeah. Humans are hoarders. And yeah, they mentioned, like, you know, when someone has a one night stand with some someone, they might take something from the apartment. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, it can be done innocently as well. But I, part of it, I feel like, is definitely humans are gatherers and. We hoard stuff. Mm-hmm. So, but in cases like these, it's uh, scary and not uh, normal. So, yes. Let's talk about Jeffrey Dahmer getting killed in prison. Mm-hmm. Do you remember this happening? 
I, I remember hearing it on the news that he had been found dead at the prison, murdered by another inmate. I mean, I don't, I didn't remember any of the details, but yeah, it made the news. Jeffrey Dahmer is dead. Was it killed by crazy another inmate? To you, or did were you following the case or anything? Well, I mean, I, I'd heard of Dahmer, but I and you know, I'd heard the basic details of it uh-huh. um, after the arrest. But then after the arrest, I'd never heard of him again until he was until he'd been killed. I didn't see the interviews when they when they happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, I mean, I, I remember the arrest, and he was a cannibal. And then I remember, you know, when the the report that he had been murdered in prison. So that was that was all that I remembered at the time. I guess I'm equating it to when Jeffrey Epstein was found dead in his prison cell, and I think social media amplified it. And if you had had social media at this time, it would have been ampl- amplified because while. Something Jeffrey Epstein committed suicide. A lot of people think he did not. So, mm-hmm. you know, that was a pretty, mm-hmm. that's what I, in yeah. my head, would equate this to, even though it sounds like, seems like it was completely, like, wasn't as shocking, I guess. Or Yeah. Yeah. Well, I found a news article called Inmate Who Kills, I'm sorry, Inmate Who Killed Jeffrey Dahmer Reveals Why He Murdered the Serial Killer from WGN9 Chicago. And this was written years later from when he talked to the police, like you mentioned in the story. So this went into some more details. His name is Christopher Scraver, as we said. And he said that Dahmer was not repentant of his crimes, which was very unlike most of the other inmates, especially the inmates who were convicted murderers. And Scraver was a murderer and he was repentant of his crimes. So no one really liked him that much because a lot of people knew what he did. And like he wasn't remorseful about it. Mm-hmm. It was pretty messed up. And Scraver said that Dahmer used to fashion limbs out of the prison food and applied ketchup to like look like blood on the limbs. Gross. And Scraver said he never interacted with Dahmer until the day he killed him, which was November 28th, 1994. And what happened this day was Dahmer and another inmate were tasked to clean the bathrooms And Scraver was with them, and he had a newspaper clipping that he had saved that detailed Dahmer's crimes and said that he was disgusted by the lust for flesh that Dahmer seemed to have. And um, I'm not sure why he kept it. Maybe he always knew he was going to confront Dahmer. They didn't really say why he had kept it, but it was something he had kept for a while. So they, you know, they're in the bathroom and they're uncuffed because they're cleaning the bathroom. Scraver felt someone poke his back when he went to retrieve a mop. And when he turned around, he couldn't figure out which one of them did that, but it made him mad. So he decided to follow Dahmer to the locker room because he already didn't like Dahmer. And he confronted him about the news article and asked if he had really done those things. Dahmer tried to escape from Scravener, but then he smashed his skull with a metal bar and beat him to death. And yeah. Dahmer died. The guards did not intervene, and Scraver believes this was on purpose. A couple of other things about Scraver that I read. He was schizophrenic. Mm. And you know, he not only killed Dahmer, he killed the other guy too. That was oh, on I the detail. Yes, so he he, kill he killed both guy. of them. Yes. Um, but yeah, he always Scraver did say he thinks they they put him with that detail on purpose thinking he would probably kill Dahmer. Yeah. But again, Scraver, 
Scraver believed that God was speaking to him and God told him to, to carry this out. Right. You know, Dahmer, Dahmer was originally segregated from the population because they feared for his safety. Mm-hmm. And uh, he finally got an attorney to file some motions to let him back in the general population. Uh, his mother was very worried. By this time, she had contacted him and was writing him, and she was very worried that something like this would happen to him. And, uh, you know, he told her not to worry that, you know, he was ready to die and he deserved to die. So he seemed to have a pretty fatalistic view. Even in the interview, they asked him if he was worried, and he he said, if it happens, it happens. Another interesting thing about Dahmer, um, once he got to prison, his father had converted to or had rejoined the church, um, and he uh, started sending religious tracts and Bibles to Dahmer, and Dahmer eventually converted to Christianity. He was baptized in the prison whirlpool by a visiting pastor who thereafter visited him every week, and um, this was the other time in the interview that Dahmer got pretty agitated, Stone Phillips asked him about accountability, and Dahmer had by that time become a pretty staunch believer in uh, creationism, creation science. His father had sent him some books and tracts about creation science, and Dahmer became very agitated talking about evolution and, you know, we're more than animals, and he thought evolution had uh, made people feel they were not accountable to any higher power, but he said, no, I am accountable. I am accountable to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and I just want to thank you, Dad, for sending me these books because it's it's really convinced me, you know, that there is a God and that uh, uh, I've committed my life to him. So so Dahmer had found some measure of of, I guess, peace or comfort toward the end of his life, but didn't seem to extend to a real remorse. Because even in the midst of this conversation, he said, no, I'd probably still be doing it if, right. if I hadn't been caught. So, And creation science is the belief that evolution did not happen, right? Right. That yeah, I mean, you know, there are various degrees of it, but basically that, yeah, the earth is not millions or billions of years old that the account it started with Ab- Adam and right that the account of creation in in the book of Genesis and the Bible is a pretty accurate rendition of of what happened hmm. so I thought just want to make sure uh-huh. since the title of this episode is why the Jeffrey Dahmer story I wanted to close the episode speculating on why we think he did this. I don't believe that it's just who he is, like he claimed. I do believe there is a chemical imbalance and that uh, I think with serial killers, I think there is some sort of uh, neurological something going on. I just do. I mean, however, I think there were things that happened in his early life that definitely contributed to this and made him go through with it such as his unstable childhood in the home. But like you said, all parents fight, but um, I feel like this is different because his parents seem to never have the same recollection of events ever or even close on the big issues. So that's got to be like, whoa, 
his unhealthy obsession with dead animals, bones, etc. His unhealthy relationship with alcohol from a young age. Like, I wonder if the alcohol affected his brain because when you're a teenager, your brain is still growing and molding. And if you're drinking as much as he was at 14, is that altering your personality and your body in that way? And the last thing I said, maybe he didn't know how to handle his sexuality at that time. Um, yeah. What do you think? I think everything you said may may be a factor, but I, I just can't, again, fathom how somebody could do this without just being, well, the, the word, the word, one of uh, the prosecutors in the Ted Bundy case used was was evil the personification of evil right and i think that's part of dahmer i mean i don't know why i mean he didn't have a perfect childhood he he had a lot of strange weird things happen but you know ultimately he did it Mm -hmm. um and he wasn't able to control himself i mean a lot of people have fantasies that stay fantasies like his father Why did Dahmer decide to live out his fantasies? I don't know. I don't know. Right. And I want to make it clear. I don't think that it was just those things that made him do this um, because a lot of people go through things like that and they don't, they are not serial killers. They don't kill people. Uh, But I I also don't believe that it's just me. That's just how I am. I mean, yeah. to to a degree, yes, because he clearly had something wrong in his brain. But yeah. it, I don't know. It's almost like not taking accountability. Like, yeah, yeah, just me. Well, to go back to last season to one of our other shows with Leopold and Loeb, I mean, these were two guys with, uh, you know, every advantage growing up mm-hmm. who just decided the rules don't apply to us. Right. When you going to talk about psychopaths, there's a couple of them for you. Um, well, quite interesting, quite spooky, as you said. I hope you can sleep tonight. Me too. Goodness. Well, thank you for that discussion, Dad. Yeah, I, I definitely hope I can sleep tonight as well. Uh, this was a wild ride for sure. Okay. Next week, in honor of the Super Bowl, we will be discussing Aaron Hernandez, the person and... The murders and his death. And uh, we're certainly glad that the New England Patriots are not in the Super Bowl this year. And as two uh, people who produce this show from Kansas City, we're going to end it with Go Chiefs! This has been Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. If you're enjoying our show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. Join our VIP Facebook group, Cocktails of Crime and Fashion VIP, to discuss cocktails, crime, and fashion, and to watch exclusive video content. Follow us on Instagram at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. We also have merch. There's a link in the episode notes. Cocktails of Crime and Fashion was written and produced by Mike Norland and Macy Norland Burkett. Our editor is Don Bailey at pretendmachine.com. Thank you to Alex Joaquim for composing our theme music and to Kaylee Bitter for designing our cover art.